I found my heart running out in uh, several directions this morning uh, with uh, great thanksgiving to God. Um, when a young uh, preacher boy named Gary Hendricks left this city and uh, went to Mebane, North Carolina, at the same time I left the city and uh, went up to Stanton, Verona, Virginia, and started pastoring a church at the ripe old age of 23. And uh, Brad Kennison is preaching this morning to some of my first spiritual babes. And uh, to think about those people this morning and connections with this city, with Mebane, with many of you. Uh, I am very much aware of how kind and merciful God has been in his dealings with this redeemed sinner. I wish to begin with the reading of two brief passages from the book of the New Testament known as Hebrews. Not a letter like many parts of the New Testament, but rather a brief written sermon. A sermon very much like one that would have been given in a Hellenistic synagogue. The human author of the sermon, no one can be sure. I'm almost certain it was not Paul. Hebrews has 40 examples of what scholars call a hapax logomena. You like that? <laughs> hapax logomena. Well, it means a word that is used only one time in the New Testament. Well, there are 40 of those in the book of Hebrews. And if there are 40 words in Hebrews not used anywhere else in the New Testament, it reduces the odds of Paul having been the author of the book. My best guess is Apollos. Apollos, after he had been better taught by an early Christian couple named Priscilla and Aquila. So would you follow or just listen carefully as I read first in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 to 14. And then we're going to turn and read one verse in Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 12 pardon me, Hebrews 3, verses 12 and 13. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And then, in the last chapter of this same biblical book, Hebrews chapter 13, and note please only verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls, as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy 
and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. I've never attempted to frame a list of the most important things to remember when we study the Bible. But if I did attempt such a list, even a short list, one point would be to remember that when the Bible says something, that that something is not everything the Bible says about that something. Is it okay if I repeat that? When the Bible says something, that something that the Bible has to say is not everything the Bible has to say about that something. That means that the careful and ongoing study of Scripture will bring us to recurring points of tension, points of sober reflection where we say to ourselves, or maybe we we say to one another, yes, the Bible teaches this truth and this truth. I continue to seek to bring these two points of truth together, uh, but for now I remain a bit uncertain as as to precisely how These two truths can be brought ideally together. Is there irresolvable uh, contradiction in Scripture? We say to ourselves or to one another, is there irresolvable contradiction in the Bible? No, but there is tension. I'm sure some of you are already thinking of two or three of those points of tension. The Bible teaches that God is absolutely sovereign in all things. And it teaches that human persons are profoundly accountable to God for the choices we make, the decisions that we carry out. And please understand, my friends, that neither of those points are a mystery. Don't say the sovereignty of God over all things is a mystery. It's not. It is plainly taught in the Bible. And don't say human accountability is a mystery. It is not. There are texts that clearly teach our moral accountability. The mystery is how both of those truths are at the same time true. That's where our limited abilities to think and to understand meet us. Now, what I want to focus on this morning, where my mind has been running... Since Pastor Alex did the kindness of of inviting me to remain uh, here overnight in Winston-Salem and to preach this morning, what my mind has been running to is to consider points of tension that are corporate. That is points of tension that show up in the life of a new covenant community, a new covenant community like this one. You see, my friends, it's not only a matter of our own lives. How do I put this truth with this truth? And we struggle with that individually in our own understanding. But there are points of tension that we have to face and live with as we live out our lives together in the fellowship of the church. Now, I'm persuaded that there is a basic reason for these points of tension. Again, it's not that there is irresolvable contradiction in the Bible. But I'm persuaded that these points of tension are always arising or often arising in the Bible because God, the infinite God, did not create a special language of revelation 
with which he would gift people to understand and speak that language when they became regenerate by the Spirit of God. I believe, based upon what we know of the character of God in Scripture, that God could have done that. God could have chosen, along with the wonder of putting spiritual life in a dead soul, in giving regenerating grace, God could have chosen to have this special revelatory language that uh, would immediately come as an ability for everyone regenerate, and we would be able to speak that language and understand it. But that's not what God did. God chose to have His infallible Word recorded in two existing human languages, Hebrew and Greek. Uh, Are those languages adequate vehicles for God to reveal to us what we need to understand? Yes, yes they are. But they are human languages, and therefore by definition they're limited. And the revelation is coming from an infinite God. An infinite God communicating his mind through the limitations of human language. Tension is unavoidable. Tension is going to be much more prevalent in the Bible than we might wish it were. So, I want to talk about how there are points of tension in the experience of a new covenant community, this new covenant community, Emmanuel Church in Winston-Salem. Number one, there is biblical tension in the public worship of a new covenant community. There's going to be some level of tension in the corporate worship of a new covenant community. This tension is perceptively captured by the title that John Piper gave several years ago to a series of lectures that he delivered at the Bethlehem Institute. He called it Gravity and Gladness on Sunday Morning. Isn't that a great title? Gravity and Gladness on Sunday Morning. Allow me to say that there is an unfortunate exegetical blunder that uh, Piper makes in that series because He states that there is no New Testament basis for formal worship services. He points out that the worship language of the New Testament is individualized to refer to the private and individual lives of believers. And that's true. Worship language is individualized in the New Testament. Romans 12.1, present your bodies a living sacrifice. That's true. But remember, my friends, it's corporate worship language that Peter is using in 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Peter's not saying all of you are individual priests. Uh, Enjoy the way... No, no, that's not it. You're a priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. There are texts, not many, not many, but there are texts that are describing what we would call corporate worship. But back to Piper's perceptive title, Gravity and Gladness on Sunday Morning. I'm persuaded that it is comparatively easy for a church to cultivate 
gravity. Uh, to produce and to maintain a sober, serious ethos to their corporate meetings. And it's comparatively easy for a church to engineer plenty of external gladness and supposed joy. It, it can be done even with the opening words that someone speaks as a worship service begins. It can begin like this. We are gathered to worship God. Let us bow down in deep humility. And don't enjoy it very much. It's implied. Or a worship service can begin with, Hello, brothers and sisters. Welcome to the celebration. We're here to sing and dance and praise Jesus. Let's give Jesus a hand this morning. I mean, you've got plenty of gladness already on hand, right? But how does a new covenant community gather for worship and at the same time be joyful and sober? At the same time, feel broken before God and lifted up into His presence. And yes, my friends, there are times when one, do when one emotion will dominate a given meeting. I'm not suggesting that uh, there's always going to be this finely tuned balance to every Lord's Day gathering. That's not the case. Uh, life is not that simple. The, the way our lives fall out individually and together, uh, is, it's not that simple. There are going to be Lord's Days when joy will be so dominant that there will hardly be a note of, of, of sorrow. But there may be Lord's Days when the notes of sorrow and grief have so gripped your minds and hearts that, that it would be inappropriate for someone to stand up and start smiling real big. Let me say it this way. We always have reasons for joy. We belong to Christ. We're indwelt by the Spirit of God. We're members of one another. We have the same heavenly home toward which we are walking together. But we have all sinned, my friends, in the hours that preceded this meeting. You say, well, I don't think I've sinned in the last couple of hours. Yes, you have. And I'll tell you how. You haven't loved God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We don't come to a Lord's Day without some sin in previous hours. And it's possible that two or three of us sin grievously on Friday morning, sin in a serious way, and maybe two or three of us who sin that way on Friday morning haven't yet fully repented. And there is a need right now for deeper repentance. And for those two or three brothers or sisters sitting here among us this morning, it would be hypocritical to grab Pastor Alex's hand after the service and say, Praise Jesus! Now, please do not expect Pastor Alex to uh, perfectly control the ethos of your public meetings. Do you have a smartphone, Pastor Young? I do. You do. It's on the podium now. Oh, oh. As our recording device. There, there may well be an app, you know, for public worship meetings. 
I wouldn't be surprised. But Pastor Alex cannot take his smartphone here on the front row and say, hmm, I think we need a little more joy this morning. Beep, 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 beep. Or, oh, too happy today. Beep, 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 beep. He, he doesn't have that kind of technological ability. He doesn't have that kind of spiritual, spiritual ability. My friends, we are thinking about something here to which we intelligently aim. We aim for this. We ask God for this. But only the sovereign spirit can really create this consistently, genuinely in the life of a church. Gravity and gladness in the public worship of God. Number two, there's tension in the marriage of ministry, in the marriage of ministry that is official and ministry that is every member ministry. There needs to be a marriage between official ministry and every member ministry. And this is the point that led me to read those two texts in the book of Hebrews this morning. Let me just read them again. And uh, I, won't, I won't start commenting. I won't start allowing myself to expand. But uh, listen again to the words of Hebrews 3. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. There's this horrible evil that we carry around with us, and it can lead us to apostasy. It can lead us to stand up and say, I don't believe this anymore. I, I, I think this is the greatest hoax ever carried out on the human race. There's that potential of evil in our hearts. Guard yourselves, brothers. How do we do this? Exhort one another. Here's the remedy. Exhort one another every day as long as it's called today. That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if we hold our original confidence firm to the end. It doesn't say, it doesn't say, if we hold our original confidence, then we come to share in Christ. The writer is not saying, if we persevere to the end, then we will have Christ. He says we have Christ, and it's evident that we have Christ by our persevering to the end. How do we do that? Exhort one another. And then, that one verse in chapter 13 is obviously laying responsibility upon not every member in the church. Obey your leaders. Well, that's our responsibility. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they, here's the unique responsibility for those called to ministry, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them give that account with joy and not with groaning or grief, for that would be of no advantage to you. My friends, the divorcing, of these two forms of church ministry is not rare in many churches in our day. There are churches that have such a high view of official ministry that members assume that their role is to sit in a pew or to sit in a chair on Sunday morning and read the text that the preacher is preaching from and sing the songs that 
are given out by someone who's leading the singing. And, uh, oh yeah, you, you write a check and you give some money on Sunday so that the official ministry can do what needs to be done. But there are not just a few churches where people assume we come, we sing, we pay attention, we give money so that everything can be taken care of by those that we pay. And there are churches that become so focused on the one another passages, and there are at least 30 of them in the New Testament. It becomes debatable as to how you translate a phrase here or there. But there are at least 30 one another passages in the New Testament as a whole, and there are churches that become so focused on those passages and on that important dynamic in the life of the church that people begin to minimize the importance of a called ministry. Both of these extremes, both expressions of imbalance, are guilty of shutting our eyes to biblical texts. Now, I want to illustrate this. I want you to use your imagination for a moment. And imagine that five years down the road, five years out into the future, Emmanuel Church of Winston-Salem has grown to 250 people. Praise the Lord. Hope it happens. Your church has grown to that point. And all of you pioneers are deeply encouraged at the blessing the Lord has granted you. But imagine that one of you gets to know one of the new families that has come among you. And you hear the husband of this new family speak to his wife in a harsh and caustic way. You can tell that he he has a tone in his voice that has just cut through the heart of his wife. Now, what what should you do? Should you go immediately to Pastor Alex and say, Pastor Alex, this new guy came into the church six months ago, Joe. Man, he really ripped his wife apart with his tongue. And I, I, I think you need to show up on their front doorstep next Thursday night and walk in and start marriage counseling with them. Is, is that the way you should respond to a harsh word you hear Joe give to his wife? Uh, please don't do that to your pastor. You say, hey, Joe, could we have lunch on Thursday? Could you meet me at such and such a place for lunch on Thursday? And you sit down over lunch, and you say, brother, you may have been having a bad day. Maybe, maybe you got some really raunchy news at work, but the way you spoke to your wife last week, we're supposed to love our wives like Christ loves the church. Were you aware of the way you spoke to her? But suppose, suppose you learn that Joe doesn't correct himself and he's not repentant with his harsh words and now he's beginning to physically abuse his wife. He's beginning to strike her with the back of his hand. And you notice that she has on especially heavy makeup when she comes to church because she's hiding some bruises on her face. Joe hasn't heard you. 
Now the problem in that marriage is escalating. It's getting worse. Now I'm not saying you ignore Hebrews 3. I'm not saying just dismiss that text. But probably you're looking at a situation where you need to say, Pastor, you need to call the elders together and talk to a man in the flock. Official ministry Every member ministry. And I... (laughs) I realized in preparing this that I was going to be very short on practical directives about, you know, how to do something better or correct something. So I took the time to count the pages of John Owen on Hebrews 3, 12 to 14. There are only 65 pages. That's all. Uh, that's all only 65 pages of Owen on those three verses and I promise and I've read them I've read them carefully I promise you will be richly rewarded if you read those 65 pages so tension in public worship tension in ministry that we carry on in the life of the church thirdly there is tension in the expectations we form toward or from the church. There is tension in the expectations that we form toward or from the church. It's probable that some of you came to Christ, you were made right with God through faith in Christ, and you had virtually no understanding of what was required for you as a part of the church, or what the church was supposed to be to you. This often happens with people who are converted uh, through campus ministries, right? Someone goes to a university out of a non-Christian home. They don't know anything about the gospel. And in God's wonder and, and, and power, uh, somebody on the campus shares the gospel with them. And they come to faith in Christ. They become part of the of that campus uh, organization of InterVarsity or Navigators or uh, whatever else it, it could be. Let's see, what, what's that one that you guys are con- closely... Co- campus, outreach. campus Outreach, yeah, Campus Outreach. My, my, my nephew worked for Campus Outreach for several years uh, here in Winston-Salem, worked on the Wake Campus for several years. Uh, so I, I, I should remember that one. Anyway, p- people get converted through the ministry of a campus organization. They, they have genuine Christian fellowship uh, in that campus organization. Then they graduate from school. And they've never been part of church. Well, sooner or later, we learn there is this vital place that God has given to the church. And then we have to choose which church are we going to join. And we join a church. And then we face the question, what should I expect from these people? What should I expect from the church leadership? What should they expect from me? There's mutual obligation. How should that work out? And asking and seeking to answer those questions will produce tension because the picture of the church in the New Testament is highly varied. Someone says, I want to be part of a New Testament church. Very good. Which one? Right? Now, 
Even the best of churches, of course, in the New Testament were not perfect. But, but there is something of an idealism in Ephesians. Uh, do you ever recognize or have you recognized that there's hardly anyone mentioned in Ephesians that, that is individuals, persons? There's a, there's a generality, there's a broadness to Ephesians that's really unique uh, among the, uh, the writings of Paul. Uh, but even this church uh, had not uh, reached uh, uh, final sanctification. So Paul says to them in chapter 4, Therefore, having put away falsehood, this is verse 25 of chapter 4, Ephesians four twenty-five. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Verse 29, let no corrupt talk come out of your mouth but only what is good for building up others as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Spirit of God by whom you're sealed to the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and clamor, evil speaking, be put away from you. Be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. What a marvelous paradigm and goal for a church. Read Ephesians. Read it carefully. But, don't forget the first letter that Paul wrote to Corinth. The first canonical letter. He'd written one letter before the canonical letter, but our first Corinthians is the first canonical letter that Paul wrote to that church. Don't forget! <laughs> don't forget that church. Ponder the divisions there. Analyze some of that Church becoming anti-Paul. Um, think about a member in the church being in bed with his stepmother. That's obviously what's going on in chapter 5. Uh, the pagans don't even do this. For a man to be sexually involved, not with his mother, with his father's wife. You've probably got an older man who marries a second time. Maybe his wife died. And when older men, even in our culture, when older men have had a wife die and they marry a second time, they marry a younger woman. It's probably what happened. An older guy marries a second wife, marries a younger woman. He's got an older son by his first wife. And there's chemistry. Paul says, even the pagans don't do this. And you know this is going on. And you seem proud about it. Imagine, my friends, being in a meeting, in a public meeting in Corinth, when eight tongue speakers want to speak in the same meeting before they dismiss and go home. That was going on. Ponder how a church could have such a skewed view of the physical body that people begin to think we're already resurrected. And we don't have any reason to believe there's going to be a future resurrection of our physical body. Think how carefully Paul has to 
resolve that mess, that confusion in chapter 15. Now, listen carefully. I am not remotely suggesting that Emmanuel Church, Winston-Salem, you know, in a few years is going to end up a, 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 a replica of Corinth. And that if that happens, everyone should say, well, it happened in the New Testament. It happened with one of Paul's churches. No, 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 no. I'm not remotely suggesting that. Indeed, there's plenty of correction that Paul gives to the Corinthian church. But I am saying this. Be sure that you read the entire New Testament as you continue to develop and mature as a church. Have in view the whole picture that God gives us of the New Covenant assembly. And merge together, merge together a robust idealism with a thoughtful realism. Number four. There is tension in the biblical demand for internal maintenance and external mission. What is a church? I'm not asking what's a church called to do. I'm asking what is the identity of a church brought together by the power of of the Spirit of God with Christ as its head. What is that church's identity? Paul tells us very clearly in 1 Timothy 3, the church is the household of God. It's the church of the living God. The church is a sphere where God dwells. I hope that we never forget the glorious thing that has happened in this new covenant age. Think about it, my friends. There was a time in history where you could say the living God lives in that tent right over there, and He doesn't live in a special way anyplace else. Imagine an Israelite go out in his field one day, and uh, he, has a, he has a Philistine neighbor. And uh, the Philistine field is close enough to the Israelite field, and, and um, the Israelite says, uh, Hey, uh, uh, Gazan friend, um, Ashkelon friend hey uh, do you know that there's only one true God and he only lives in one place specially in the whole world and it's right over there in that tent and the, the Philistine would say well we have a God we, we have temples and we have gods that live in there well your, your gods aren't true gods they're idols there's only one true God and, and we're his people, and right over there is the only place where he specially dwells. That would have been true. Uh, you might say, well, it wouldn't have been very wise to talk to your Philistine neighbor that way. Okay, but that would have been factual. That would have been an accurate statement. And now, oh, now, what is happening? And what has happened? Now God has places where he manifests himself in a peculiar way all over the world. And he's made you one of those. It's amazing. So, yes. We internally maintain ourselves because we are the temple of the living God. But my friends, we don't just 
maintain the temple and always be adjusting everything in the temple to be sure that it's exactly right and precisely what it's supposed to be. No, no. The living temple of God's presence is to have an expression outward. And there's to be hearts that go out to the weak and the, and the broken and the confused people of the society in which God has called us to live. I don't think there are many, many cities in the United States with more churches than Winston-Salem. But you know what I can do at my house in Roanoke, Virginia? I can stand on my front porch, just a little thing outside my front door. I've done this. I've actually done this. I can stand on my front porch and I can look down the street and up the street, across the street, and I can see 13 houses. I can see the front or at least part of 13 houses from my front door. And on Lord's Days, there are three, maybe three families that leave those houses and go to a place of worship. And from where I live, there's an evangelical, solid Southern Baptist Church, Cave Spring Baptist Church, pastored by a man who used to be on the faculty at Southeastern. His name is Pete Shem. Fine man of God. Got a whole bunch of kids. I think he's got nine kids. His Sunday school attendance went up, you know, when he accepted the church, you know. Uh, a mile and a half from my house, there's a Lutheran church that preaches the gospel. And two miles from my house is, is a private school where a PCA church gathers. I'm telling you, my friends, my neighborhood is surrounded by the gospel. And there are a lot of people on my street that are going to hell. And I wish I could say that I've done whole lots to try to keep them from going there. But I still need to do more. Internal maintenance. External mission. Now I have one more. One more point of corporate tension. There's tension in the biblical call to Catholicity and the biblical demand for integrity. Let me define my terms. My use of the word Catholicity has nothing to do with the Roman Catholic Church. I'm using the word to refer to the call of Christ that every Christian love every other believer in Christ. Isn't that what Jesus prays for in John 17? I'm, I'm going to give you the text. John 17, 20 to 23. Jesus prays, make them one. All of them. All of them that confess my name. All of them that know me. Now he's not saying every church that has a, has a, a cross on the top of the steeple and every church that has Christian in its name, be sure you cooperate. No, no. But he's saying everyone who's embraced the apostolic gospel and who is a credible professor of this gospel, embrace them with genuine love. But, 
A Christ-honoring Catholicity does not cancel out the demand for God-honoring corporate integrity. This congregation, under the leadership of its elders, must remain faithful to what it understands as biblical ministry to this body of believers. Now, again, I want to be very clear, if the Lord will help me, because we're living in a time and a place where there are so many Christian endeavors of some kind or some brand, various campus ministries, there's probably a young life effort in uh, your local high school, there's a local fellowship of Christian athletes, there are various endeavors to get women together to study the Bible, and probably similar efforts for men, and you as an individual Christian are free to get involved in one of those efforts, two of those efforts, so long as you, main priority for, as you maintain priority for your family and your church. Can I run that one by you again? You have a freedom as a Christian to be involved in one of those ministries insofar as it's in keeping with faithfulness to your family and faithfulness to the church you're part of. But, if you get involved at the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, at a college campus, or a local high school, don't expect your elders to jump on the bandwagon and start putting up posters for Fellowship of Christian Athletes. You've made a judgment as an individual Christian. You're free to make your individual judgment. You're not free to dictate what the church should do. You don't have that liberty. I'm now occasionally involved in a Bible study on Thursday mornings that meets at Mill Mountain Coffee and Tea in Roanoke. It's a local coffee company that started a long time ago from two guys that had worked in Seattle. And uh, this, this thing was functioning a long time before we ever had a Starbucks anywhere. And uh, one of these... Mill Mountain Coffee and Tea is uh, convenient to my house. And a couple years ago when I took my taxes to an accountant, somebody told me about a Christian man that was an accountant and did taxes. I took my taxes to this guy and put all my material, my information down on his desk. And he started talking to me and, and, uh, and uh, started pouring out his heart to me and and broke down and started weeping. And, I, and I'm sitting there, you know, just come to get my taxes done. <laughs> and so I, I spent some time with the man. I, I just listened to him. I responded. And, and he was helped. And, and out, of, out of the help he felt he received, he said, I want you to come to a Bible study that I'm a part of. He said... All the, all the guys that come to this, they'll, they'll love you. And I said, well, brother, you don't, you don't know that. Um, that, that. That would remain to be determined. He said, oh, no, no, they, they will. I, I want you to come. Well, I show up occasionally. For the last couple years. I'll show up. And I'll plot my Bible down. And I'll sit around, you know, drink tea, drink coffee, maybe eat some scrambled eggs. And I'm never the teacher. I've taught one time. 
only once, but I, I'm, I'm sitting there listening. Now, I don't go to get instructed theologically. I, I don't go to have my knowledge of the Bible deepened. I go because a couple of those men have become precious to me. Two of those men, the accountant and another man, have become precious to me. I've come to love them intensely. And I want to do them good. And I want to do them more good in the future than I've done up to this point. So I take a Thursday morning occasionally. It's only an hour, seven to eight. Occasionally, if my schedule allows, I show up. And I sit there with my Bible open. I have never gone to my elders and said, could we announce the men's Bible study at Mill Mountain Coffee and Tea on Thursday morning? Most of the guys at that Bible study are members of a charismatic Episcopal church. It's a very large evangelical church. And uh, I'm learning things about the evangelical community being part of that Bible study. And these two guys, I love them. I have a good reason. If I can do it consistently with all my other priorities. But I don't dictate to my church or to my elders. It's an individual choice. Please remember that. Please remember that. Well, I want to close this morning by using a current television commercial. I thought about beginning with this, you know, to show how with it I am in being relevant as a preacher, you know, start with a TV commercial. But I, I, I decided against that. But uh, I do want to make use of a commercial for LifeLock. It's a service that you can put on your computer, your smartphone, that keeps all of your information private and secure. And the commercial begins with a gang of bank robbers charging through the door of a bank and starting to shoot up the bank and threatening the personnel and the customers of the bank. And two of the customers, one male and one female, fall down on the floor flat-faced, okay? I mean, they're, 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 they're you know, they're, they're looking up, you know, like that, flat out on the floor. And here, standing in, in the hotel, I'm, I'm sorry, the, the bank, is, is a security guard. Standing there with his uniform, you know, like this. And one of the prostrate customers looks up and says, do something. Do something. And he said, um, I- I'm not a security guard. I'm a security monitor. I just tell you when there's a danger. Oh, by the way, you're being robbed. He has no solution. He just says, you're being robbed. I feel a little bit like that security guard this morning because I've done little more than say, here's some problems. You better think about them. But my friends, if the Holy Spirit has put his finger on one or two areas of your life for your part and your place in this congregation 
I, I believe our time will have been well spent. But am I speaking to someone this morning who is now outside the church looking in? You're assessing the claims of Christ. You're assessing how well these Christians are following Christ. And if you're in that position this morning, I want to, I want to assure you that God is being very merciful to you because He's put you in this gathering of genuine Christians. If you have some spiritual interest, if you're beginning to think, oh man, I, I, I really have messed up, and, and I, I know there's a God, and, and, and I know that I've just fouled up all kinds of things, and things are not right between me and God. If you're beginning to think that, God has put you in this place where there are people who know how for people to be right with God. They can tell you the story of Jesus in a clear way. And God has put you in this place where there are genuine Christians. This is a Christian gathering where you will hear the core message of the Bible. And where you will see genuine Christians live out their faith. God is granting you opportunity to inspect. But very soon, inspection time is over. Right? Very soon, you've had plenty of time to inspect. And you have to decide will I be a follower of Christ? And maybe someone this morning is already past the inspection stage. And even now, you can say, I'll be one of them. I'll trust this Christ. I'll believe that he took my sins on himself when he died on the cross. I believe he was raised from the dead. I believe he's the exalted Lord. And I will have him. I will bow down to him. Please pray with me. Father, you are kind and merciful to give us this season together this morning in this place to provide safety and comfort for us to assemble, to read your word and to sing praise to you and to consider some of what you've said to us in your word. Please come and write these things on our hearts. For the glory of Christ, we pray in his name. Amen.